0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: And I'm Jordan Rubin.
0: So, uh, we've been on a little bit of a break. Nice to see you back, Jordan.
1: Oh, that is so nice of you to say. <laughs> we, nice of you uh, to lie.
0: we had um, some book tours that we had to do, and we were teaching overseas, so we took a little break. Um,
1: As the justices do.
0: Right, right. Or maybe it was them. They did that.
1: You know, we're just like so <laughs> simpatico, I can't even tell the difference anymore.
0: Well, we're back, uh, and today we're going to do our preview episode of the term, um, which is already shaping up to be pretty explosive. Yep. We've got. Um, Sex discrimination, immigration, and gun control. So,
1: and this is heading into eventually an election year, so should get pretty heated.
0: Yeah, great, great timing.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so, before we start, for our new listeners or for anybody else who just needs a refresher, uh, cases and controversies will kick off every week um, of oral argument from October to April with a sneak peek episode giving you a quick preview of what the justices are going to consider that week. And then we'll follow with a couple of deep dive episodes, which, as you guessed it, take a deep dive at a particular um, argument or a particular issue uh, that will be before the court. And for those episodes, we'll have some Supreme Court lawyers come on and tell you about the cases um, and other fun special guests.
1: And uh, today we have in our kickoff episode one of those deep dives and we're lucky to have one of those Supreme Court lawyers here with us in the studio to help preview these cases, including one that she's arguing. Sarah Harrington is a partner with Goldstein and Russell. She's argued a whopping 20 cases at the Supreme Court. Before private practice, Sarah was an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General for eight years, and she's here today to bring that Supreme Court wisdom and expertise to cases and controversies. Sarah, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I hope I can live up to that introduction.
1: Oh, I'm sure you will. So let's just dive right into it with the first big case that we're going to look into. I can set this up a little bit. So the first week of arguments, we're going to be looking at the issue of sex discrimination. This is definitely going to be one of the biggest issues that's going to We're going to be looking at this for the rest of the term after the case is argued. It's going to be a question of when the decision is going to come out. And this is going to be one of the big ones that we're looking at. And so there are actually three cases being argued the first week of the term on Tuesday, October 8th, with back-to-back arguments. First that day, there are two separate cases consolidated for one argument Altitude Express against Zarda and Bostock against Clayton County, Georgia. And in those cases, the question is whether discrimination against an employee because of sexual orientation constitutes prohibited discrimination, employment discrimination, quote, because of sex, end quote, within the meaning of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, So, Donald Zarda was a skydiving instructor in New York, and Gerald Bostock worked for child welfare at a juvenile court in Georgia. Both say they were fired because they were gay. The second case that day, R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes against EEOC, asks whether under Title VII, it's prohibited discrimination against transgender people based on their status as transgender or sex stereotyping under a case called Price Waterhouse against Against Hopkins. And the second case involves Amy Stevens, who says she was fired by a Michigan funeral home because she's transgender. And so the question in these cases is whether the Title VII protections protects sexual orientation and gender identity claims at all. So it's a bit of a long wind up for an introduction, but let's just get right into it. What are kind of the arguments here on both sides? What are things that we're going to be looking at from the justices at the Oral argument the first week of the term.
2: You know these are pretty interesting cases, and uh, the the plaintiff's basic pitch is that. Uh, if they had been, you know, they are men who are attracted to other men. If they had been women attracted to other men, they would not have been fired. Right. And so, in their view, that is discrimination because of sex. Uh, they also rely on case law saying that sex stereotyping is illegal under Title VII. And so, they say they don't conform to the employer's sort of stereotypical view of of men and how men should behave, and that that's why uh, they're be- that's why they were fired. Now the arguments on the other side um, sort of sort of say that you should look at Title VII um, as approach as focused more on categorical discrimination, and so it says that the discrimination because of sex does not mean because of sexual orientation. What it prohibits is treating men better than women or vice versa. And so, for example, if only men were fired for being gay and women were not fired for being gay, they say that would violate Title VII. They also focus a lot on um, what they say Congress intended when it enacted Title VII, and they say, and everyone pretty much agrees that mm-hmm. Congress did not have this in mind.
1: Right.
2: Uh, and uh, so they say, you know, you have to look at sort of what they intended and what those words meant at the time. Interestingly enough, the plaintiffs pushed back on that, um, relying on a concurrence by the late Justice Scalia right. in a case called Uncall, which, which recognized um, an action for same-sex sexual harassment under Title VII. And Justice Scalia said, you know, clearly, this is not what Congress had in mind, but the words mean what the words mean, and um, if if the words cover this, then it's covered.
1: So it could wind up being a a Scalia opinion that winds up saving the day for people seeking more gay rights protections.
2: Yeah, it could, and you know, th- this is a case where the ch- the recent changes in the composition of the court are going to really be interesting, because of course, Justice Kennedy was a key fifth vote, and. You know, recognizing the right to for same sex marriage. Uh, and so it's, and, and he's of course gone now. And so uh, we don't know how his replacement or Justice Scalia's replacement, um, Justice Gorsuch, how they're going to um, approach these sort of issues.
0: You know, one thing I noticed in the arguments, uh, in the briefing, um, was that the arguments really did seem to be tailored to this kind of change in composition, right? So um, they do, you know, look at. Justice Scalia, they do make these really kind of textualist arguments. Um, wondering if that, I mean, if you see it the same way and if you think that we're going to be seeing these kinds of um, similar arguments made in the future now that...
2: I think that's right. So Justice Kagan said recently that, you know, we are all textualists now. And I think um, that, that that is really true, that that has sort of taken over At least in statutory interpretation cases, which this is. And everybody starts their argument with the text, and policy is only like the fourth backup argument, just saying this confirms what our reading of the text. Um, And so, um, you know, I think it does, uh, I think those arguments are really now focused on everyone, but in particular, they're, you know, they're trying to pick off a conservative vote. And, you know, we saw some interesting lineups last term, where it was the first term we had these nine justices. And Justice Gorsuch in particular seems to be really um, focused on the text. And so I think there's some attempts to kind of pique his interest in the in the plaintiff's point of view.
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's really interesting thing that we'll be watching. Um, Anything else to say about about this case?
2: Yeah. So one thing that's interesting about these two cases and then another one, I guess a couple more, we're going to talk about is that the court, um, once it was teed up for the court to decide whether it wanted to hear the cases, it did something called relisting, um, which is where the court considers the the cert papers, which is the petition saying please take us and the responses at a conference, and then it relisted it meaning it, it rescheduled it for the next conference. And it did that 11 times, wow. um, yeah, which is pretty unusual. And sometimes it'll do that if it's waiting for things to catch up, or sometimes it'll just do nothing if there's another um, case it's about to decide that it thinks will affect um, the case. But it rescheduled it 11 times, and it wasn't obvious. Um, there were no real obvious docket reasons for that. Um, and so I think the conventional wisdom in the community is that the court was really not excited to wade into Mm -hmm. this area, (laughs) that the court has, um, you know, if you look at most of the docket for last term or in this term, it's things that I find extremely interesting, (laughs) but your average person on the street would say, you know, I I don't know what ERISA is and I don't want to (laughs) know, right? There's a lot of stuff that's sort of technical and important for people, but not controversial and not hitting on social hot button issues. And um, that certainly does not describe these cases. And so I think there's sort of a sense that the court um, was reluctant um, to take, to, to wade into this area.
0: Well, that's actually a perfect segue into um, the next case I want to talk about. That's uh, is one of these real Haban issues. There's a case about Arissa um, that you mentioned. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> that uh, was not
1: discussed. <laughs> not that was for. not on the plan. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, fine. We don't have to discuss the ERISA cases. Let's let's do DACA instead. How about yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, there are a handful of cases that have all been consolidated um, that do deal with. Um, DACA that is um, DACA of course is the Obama era policy that had deferred deportation for a number of young Americans who um, or immigrants who were brought to this country um, when they were children and the Trump administration has said that it wants to wind down this policy it wants to get rid of it and here we're not really looking um, at the underlying uh you know, benefits of DACA and whether or not it's a good policy. Um, again, we're looking at whether or not the Trump administration has given a proper reason for wanting to end uh, DACA. And so this has kind of remnants of the other two policies that we've seen at the court, uh, both in the travel ban and then last term, the census, where, you know, people are really questioning or the court is really examining the reasons um, that the administration is doing these policies. Um, so this is a, a three-peat, I guess. Yeah. Um, and wondering, you know, if you can tell us a little bit about what the Trump administration is saying its reasonings are, what the lower courts have said about that, and then
2: You know, maybe tell us if this is just
0: going to be another repeat of the census case.
2: It is interesting, the synergy among these different cases. Um, And so what the Trump administration originally said was we are rescinding DACA, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, um, because we think it was illegal in the first place. And so we're taking it back. And it was immediately challenged in several courts. And um, the one, one argument the Trump administration made was, well, courts don't have the authority to review that decision because it's totally discretionary. There's um, I'll try not to be too technical. There's something called the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, which says that things that are committed to agency discretion by law um, are not reviewable in the courts. And basically what that that means is if if it's up to the to the agency to do it or not to do it and there's no legal standard by which you could judge their decision to do it or not to do it, then courts are supposed to stay out of it.
0: So um, could the Trump administration just say we don't like this and then we we would be out of the courts?
2: So they, they probably could have done that, yes. And so, you know, there are certain procedural boxes they have to check, but in terms of reasons they give. If they had just said, we think it's bad policy, you know, we want to be strict on immigration, that's one of our main policy priorities. Uh, and so we're taking it back. Uh, I think that could have short-circuited a lot of a lot of this litigation. Instead, what they said is, we think it's illegal. Of course, it's hard to say simultaneously, we're taking it back because it's illegal and there is no law to apply, because it either is illegal or it isn't illegal. Uh, and so the lower courts have said, well, of course we can review it because you're just giving us a legal conclusion, not any, um, you know, what you're telling us is you don't think you have discretion to do it. And so it's not an exercise of discretion. Um, in the course of the litigation, they were given an opportunity by one of the courts to supplement the record or to give other reasons, and they did give some other reasons. The challengers say, "Well, those are post hoc rationalizations." And then this again has some good synergy with the Commerce Department, the Census case, where the Supreme Court ultimately said, "You can do it if you want to do it, but you can't lie to us about why you're doing it. You have to give us a real reason." And these and the sort of post hoc rationalizations that they gave didn't really fly. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see if if um, any bad feelings from that spill over into this, um, or if they kind of give him a pass on this one?
0: Yeah, so we're recording this in the wake of an article. Uh, CNN article that actually revealed um, what many had suspected Mm -hmm. um, happened in the census case. Um, Shortly after the census case was argued or while it was being argued, it was pretty clear the way that Chief Justice Roberts was leaning. And I think everybody thought it was going to be a 5-4 decision in favor of the government. And then we got some additional um, information um, about kind of the background on the census case. And um, As the article goes, the chief justice changed his mind. Um, And so this is, uh, you know, something that we're hearing about internal deliberations, which are usually secret of the court. But um, and we can't really confirm that. But you wonder if that's kind of now not only do we have that in the background, but now everyone knows um, that, too. I wonder if that's going to play into you know, the chief's thinking or anyone else on the court?
2: I mean, it's hard to see how it wouldn't, right? So first, it's remarkable that there's sort of a backstory that has been told about a case so recently decided. Yeah. That's f- extremely unusual for the Supreme Court. They lock down that information. Um, but it does really point out the difficult position that the chief justice in particular is in right now. You know, the, this president, President Trump, has been pretty open about talking about the court as if it's something that's in the administration's back pocket. He sort of is pretty open about wanting to stack the court and... Um, saying, you know, we need to just skip over these courts of appeals and get to the Supreme Court where we are surely going to win. Um, Now, that doesn't make the court look particularly good, and the chief justice especially, and I think all his colleagues as well, really care a lot about the public perception of the court. Um, And so I think, you know, one reason they're reluctant to wade into these kinds of sort of hot-button social issues is that these are really things that everyone thinks should be handled legislatively, and when when it's sort of put on the doorstep of the court and they're forced to handle it... It makes people feel like the court is a more political institution and it makes them act like a more political institution.
0: Mm-hmm. Although we saw, you know, uh, it's a little bit to the court's own making, right? Because we, we've seen the Trump administration come to the court a lot, asking them to skip over lower courts or to stay, in particular, to stay lower court opinions. And um, just recently, the, that's exactly what the Supreme Court did. They stayed, um, uh, you know, an injunction on the uh, asylum ban. And so... I guess if the court doesn't want to be put in these situations, why does it keep a- acquiescing? Um, you know, we we saw in particular Justice Sotomayor, with Justice Ginsburg, wrote um, a dissent from the stay, saying, you know, this isn't this isn't normal. You know, it's the new normal. But we've seen the Trump administration run to us a lot, and we shouldn't we shouldn't be doing this.
2: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. You know, I was in the Solicitor General's office for eight years, and I can't really think of any times when we asked the court to give cert before judgment or to stay things or to step in, you know. Uh, and that may reflect that a Democratic administration is more reluctant to ask for special uh, procedures from this court than a Republican administration mm. would be. But it also, I, you know, I think that this administration has is emboldened by their success, you know. Almost every time they have gone to the court and said, you know, we need mandamus, we need a stay, we need cert before judgment, the court, um, with, the, with a little bit of hand wringing on the edges, <laughs> has said, okay, you know, mm-hmm. um, and this is another case where the, where they just hung on to this case for a long time before they granted this, the cert petition, so they, I think it was teed up in January for them to decide, mm-hmm. and they just sat on it until the very end of the term in June and finally took the cases and, uh, you know, I think there was some conversation during that time um, about between the administration and Congress about, like, let's come up with a legislative solution. There's a real human toll here. Um, you know, people are focused on this sort of administrative law aspects of the case. But there are 800,000 people who have taken advantage of this program who were who are undocumented through no decision of their own. They were brought here as children. They have graduated from high school or joined the military, don't have a serious criminal background. You know, these are... People, um, you know, I think most people think, well, we should find some way to make it work for them, and um, and so I think many people thought the court was just like, well, let's let's wait and see <laughs> if the political branches yeah. can do their job. Um, uh, hold
0: your breath, guys. <laughs> yeah.
2: Guess what? Nothing happened. Um, uh, yeah. But there is, you know, I think because of the human toll, there's this that puts extra pressure on this view that the, the administration needs to be honest about why it's doing what it's doing, and that's kind of the story of the challengers. They say, look. First of all, you have to grapple with the reliance interest that these people have. They've, you know, they've depended on this program. It means a lot to them. Um, but they've also said, you know, you if. We need to stand up and say, we are not legally compelled to do this, but we choose to do this and so that you can face the consequences in the political process of doing that.
0: Yeah. One thing I wanted to be sure to touch on, you know, we, we did talk about how the Trump administration has been coming a lot to um, the Supreme Court. I think the, their response would be that um, courts are being really tough on them, especially the lower courts. They, yeah. You know, we, we've we heard the attorney general now give a couple of speeches about um, nationwide injunctions. Stay with me, people. This is really... <laughs>
2: Yeah. It's important, actually. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, This idea that, you know, one court um, usually at now in uh, California under the Obama administration, it was a court in Texas um, who, you know, can freeze the uh, policy across the whole nation outside of the bounds of um, their courts and whether or not that's really proper. And the Trump administration has some stats where they say that, you know, they've just gotten an overwhelming number of these permanent injunctions, including in these DACA cases. Um, so I guess that would be their response. Um, yeah.
1: Needed to, they need to take extraordinary measures to combat a, a new judicial resistance uh, growing against them, they would say. Something like that. The other day, actually, the Solicitor General, Noel Francisco, he was asked a question along these lines at a, at a panel. And his answer was something along the lines of, well, if uh, the question was basically why not just wind down uh, or, or give a legitimate reason or a different reason for taking away the policy, and he said essentially there would be litigation anyway, and so we think we're right, and so uh, let's resolve it in in this case was the gist of his answer. So,
2: I mean, he's probably right that there would be litigation anyway. Like it seems like they would be on stronger footing in that litigation, but you know they stuck with their census justification too even when right. you know Evans came out to show that it was clearly a pretext so um, you know I think they they have they feel emboldened I think and they have had some success and it is true that they have been subject to more nationwide injunctions and nationwide injunctions the argument goes you know they inhibit the development of the law because um, normally a Supreme Court the Supreme Court and they also require the Supreme Court to step in earlier so normally the Supreme Court won't step in. Um, to resolve a legal issue until different courts of appeals have reached different issues. And it's many courts have had a chance to sort of play out the legal issues and think about it hard. But when you have a nationwide injunction in the first case, that's kind of the end of the story. Like either there's you can do the policy or you can't do the policy. Um, and so I think uh, that issue isn't teed up in, directly in this case. But at some point, the, the court is going to be asked to... Opine on whether or when nationwide injunctions are appropriate, and my instinct is they're going to say, "No, likey, yeah, <laughs> like, cut yeah. it out." <laughs>
0: yeah, we saw we saw a little bit of this in the travel ban case. Actually, Justice Thomas wrote separately to emphasize um, how much he really hated um, permanent injunctions or uh, nationwide injunctions and cosmic, injunction. cosmic. That was Justice Gorsuch who called it cosmic, intergalactic but, <laughs> injunctions. I think I think in most of these they specifically carve out like the Veda system. So I'm not sure we can call it. All right. So there's a little wiggle room there. <laughs> a little yeah. bit. Yeah.
1: So now let's get into we talk about some of these cases and they're okay, but let's get into the real case, Sarah. Oh yeah. Kansas against Glover. Yep. Um this is a big fourth amendment case that it's your case, and you're going to be arguing it in November. So can you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to be arguing on behalf of Mr. Glover. Uh, Mr. Glover lives in Lawrence, Kansas, and he um, had a revoked driver's license uh, and was driving his truck through Lawrence, Kansas, and a police officer um, ran his plate, did not observe any traffic infractions or any suspicious behavior but just ran his plate um, and the information came back that the plate that the car the registered owner of the car had a revoked license and so he pulled mr. Glover over to see if in fact mr. Glover was driving the car and he was and then he let him drive away but um, issued him you know later he was um, prosecuted for driving on a a, without a valid license and uh, he moved to suppress the evidence arguing that it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment because uh, the state basically, it's an unusual case because the facts, there's a stipulation. There's, I think, I can't remember how many now, seven stipulated facts, basically. And that's all the evidence. That's all the factual development that the case has by agreement of the parties. And so the officer said, just what I told you, I ran the plate. I had no reason to run the plate. The registered owner didn't have a valid license. I pulled them over just based on the assumption that the, that the owner would be driving. And so Mr. Glover said, well, that's that's not reasonable suspicion. Like you didn't observe, you didn't see anything about me. You had no reason to think I was the the owner. You didn't see me, you know, violate a traffic law. It's pretty hard not to violate a traffic law, you know, driving from point A to point B. Um, And the trial court said, yeah, that's right. But you know, you, you can't just say, I just assumed that the driver was the owner without any evidence to support that and suppress the evidence. Uh, And ultimately, the Kansas Supreme Court um, upheld that decision.
1: So for someone who's listening to this who maybe isn't steeped in Fourth Amendment issues, um, they might think something kind of weird about the facts of this case is that uh, it was the guy, it was Glover who was driving the car. And so the fact that it did turn out to be him, why doesn't that make everything OK?
2: Yeah, well, that's basically always going to be the case in a Fourth Amendment case because if it wasn't him, that would have been the end of it, right? Mm -hmm. So you're only going to bring a Fourth Amendment challenge to a a search or a seizure, and this is considered a seizure when you do a traffic stop if you're being prosecuted for something. Um, And it's maybe not always the crime that uh, you were pulled over for, but... um, Basically, uh, if they have some reason to go after you, that's when it's gonna come up. Um, but you know, the point of the Fourth Amendment is it's sort of a prophylactic protection for everyone to prevent the government from just willy-nilly stopping people, searching them, seizing them. Um, and so there are standards. And um, for something like a traffic stop, they, the standard is this very mushy phrase called reasonable suspicion, which the court has said repeatedly, like, nah, we can't really tell you anything more than that it's reasonable <sighs> suspicion. Like, we know it when we see it. it depends on all the facts. You kind of, like, have to give some deference to officers and based on their training and experience, but we can't really give you a more precise definition than that. Um, and what Kansas is asking the court to do is um, to adopt a law that would be applicable in every jurisdiction, in every circumstance, that... Anytime you know a car is owned by someone without a valid license, you can pull them over. Of course, when someone has a when someone owns a car and has a suspended or revoked license, they still need to live their lives, right? They need to get to work. Their kids need to get to school. They have to go to the grocery store, to church, or whatever they need to do. And so, someone's going to need to drive that car if they're going to have to do that. And so, you know, whether it's the their adult children, their spouse, their you know uh, the nanny, the au pair, whoever, someone's going to have to to drive the car to get the work of the family done, those people can be stopped at any time and for no reason other than that they're driving the car under the rule that Kansas wants.
1: And so if the response to that is, okay, you pull the car over, it's not the person they thought it was, you send them on their way, what's the big deal?
2: Yeah, well so that's that's one of the arguments the Solicitor General filed the brief on behalf of Kansas, and that's they really kind of pushed on that argument, like, eh, no big deal. Once you see that it's not, or once you have reason to believe, like if you know the owner's a man and you see the driver's a woman, that's gotta be the end of it. But um but that they really underplay the significance of a traffic stop. And so first, you know, you can't just if the officer sees that it's a woman and knows the owner's a man, they're not just gonna get in their car and drive away, they have to actually interact with the person. That's, that can be a very scary experience. You know, if it's, a te- if it's a 17-year-old girl who's never been pulled over and wasn't doing anything wrong, she will have no idea what's happening. She could appear very nervous. The court has said in a number of cases, appearing nervous is a reason to <laughs> prolong a stop, you know, to suspect wrongdoing. Um, the officer can ask for consent to search the car, can ask for consent to question the people. They can. Um, they're permitted to ask for identification. They're permitted to order the driver and any passengers to get out of the car. You know, it's not just a simple thing. Of course there are some populations where a traffic stop um, feels even scarier. You right. know, p- populations where people are poorer, people of color, you know, where, where some communities don't have a good relationship with their local law enforcement. Um, you know, the stakes can feel much higher. And of course those are the communities where they're much likely to have higher rates of suspended licenses. Because although Kansas says, look, this is really important for safety that we be able to keep these dangerous drivers off the road, in fact, in many states, a a majority of people with suspended or revoked licenses have the suspension based on reasons that are unrelated to traffic safety. There are a lot of states, you know, Florida is a big offender here, that um, suspend licenses for financial reasons, you know, the failure to pay court fees, um, failure to appear on a bad check charge, failure to pay child support, um, and so- You have a drug
1: conviction, that could be one Right, incident. drug conviction,
2: like truancy in some cases, you know, um, and so there are millions and millions of people who've had their licenses suspended in this country for reasons unrelated to traffic safety, and then if you imagine the many millions of people who are members of their community or their households who might drive their car, we're talking about a lot of people who are going to, you know, potentially going to get pulled over for doing nothing wrong.
0: And this also seems like one of those cases where the recent change in the makeup of the court might make this case come out a little differently than it might have before, too.
2: Well, here's the to hoping. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. No, I mean, it is interesting that traditionally one thought of the more liberal justices as pro-criminal defendant and the more conservative justices as pro-government in criminal cases. That has really, even before the recent makeup of the court, that has really started to shift. Um, The there is a real skepticism among people like the Chief Justice and Justice um, Thomas of kind of over enforcement of um, of criminal law. That uh, and it, it comes up more often with the federal government, I think, than with state governments. But there is a sense that there that. People are being too aggressive about the enforcement of federal law. And and last year we saw um, Justice Kavanaugh cited and um, and Justice Gorsuch cited with criminal defendants in a few cases. Um, and so, you know, we're hoping that'll happen here. And, and in fact, we did get some, um, some amicus support on our side from kind of more conservative libertarian mm-hmm. um, points of view. And, um, you know, certainly Justice Gorsuch has shown a libertarian streak in him. Um, and so it'll just be interesting to see Um, what their take on this case is.
1: So we have a bit of a sense of the the substance of the case. I'm wondering, it would be a real treat for listeners. Maybe you could fill them in a little bit on what it's like as your preparation, you know, we're, what, a couple of months, a month and a half or so out from the argument. What's, What's it looking like now for you? What are you... What are you doing heading into this?
2: So number one on the list is clearing the decks of other things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we try to, um, you know, I try to carve out some space in the couple, two to three weeks before the argument where I don't really have to deal with any of my other work. And so I'm trying to kind of work ahead and do that. Um, And then, you know, in my view, the most important part of the preparation is to do moot courts. Um, And this is. Uh, Anyone who has worked in the Solicitor General's office will give you that same answer um, because it is a big part of preparation in that office and the moot courts are so um, difficult and valuable. And basically the way you set up a moot court is you get practitioners um, to read the briefs and pretend to be the justices of the court and you stand up um, and... You know, you start talking, and they start interrupting you as the justices mm-hmm. do, and they try to ask you the hard questions. Um, I try to encourage them also to ask the easy questions because <laughs> people often forget to practice those. But sometimes they get asked at the at the right. court, and so it's good to sort of try to you try to get the full um, range of questions.
0: Now, does somebody, do you assign someone a justice? So, like, you get to be Justice Ginsburg today. You're going to be Justice Thomas. You yeah, thing. I don't.
1: I justice try- Thomas might be easy. <laughs>
0: right. I can do it if you
2: need me. I don't do that, but I do try to get a range of um, sort of perspectives, hmm. you know. Um, so I have some friends and former colleagues and, um, you know, the people in the community who have a more lefty perspective, some have a more righty perspective. And so I'll try to get um, some from both sides just to sort of um, – have people who just whose starting place is maybe different from mine, or um, and to try to get a representative sense of um, what the court might think. Some sometimes people from root courts think like, oh, what you really need to do is get a specialist, someone who knows everything there is to know about the Fourth Amendment. My perspective is, well, it's much better to have generalists because yeah. that's who your audience is, and so um, you know, the the. Supreme Court is very familiar with the Fourth Amendment because they have Fourth Amendment cases every year, but um, that is also true of people who have worked in the SG's office. You know, um, there's you're, They've certainly mooted if not worked on Fourth Amendment cases, and so um, I have some former colleagues who are going to help moot me. And then there are a couple of um, institutions in D.C. that will do moot courts, so Georgetown um, Supreme Court Institute will do a moot court. My opponent got that one. They'll uh. only, yeah, they'll <laughs> only moot one Saturday. Actually, my opponent, Toby Cross, who's the SG of Kansas, is a very nice person and we have a good relationship. I think people who are not... Lawyers, you know, view opposing counsel as being like, "Oh, I hate that guy," but um, he's been super nice, and we've had a very cooperative relationship. And we are appearing on a panel at the University of Kansas later this week together to talk about. The, case the and, whole
1: Supreme Court docket that's coming from Kansas. Canada, yeah. yeah, they
2: have three cases up, um, and I think their Estuary's office is two people or something like that. Oh, wow. So Are <laughs> Toby's you been busy, they're just too busy, and they <laughs> I offered, forget about I your case. I offered and... when we were trying to work out the schedule. Toby said, "Oh, there's so much to to make it work <laughs> together." I said, "Well, you can just dismiss your petition. I'd be happy to help <laughs> you that way." He did not take me up on that offer. So
0: <laughs> because they have another one the next week too, or is it the week before? Right? They have two in October two and in... then mine is oh, in November. That's right. yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So well, it's a lot. Oh well,
0: you know that bad timing. Good luck for him yeah,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> uh.
1: So we talked about some of the cases that are we know are going to be on the calendar already. Let's um, maybe look to something called the long conference and maybe talk about some cases that could potentially be added to the docket. Um,
0: right. So the long conference this year is going to be on October 1st, um, and this is whenever the justices sit down, we presume for a long time, um, to consider uh, all the cases that have been piling up since they've been doing their book tours and teaching abroad. Uh, And so... There are a number of cases that are really interesting um on the song conference. Is there anything in particular that that you are watching?
2: Well, so there's a case called um June versus June Medical Services versus Guy, which is um a case out of Louisiana um, challenging uh, a Louisiana restriction on abortions basically it's a law that requires abortion providers to have admitted privileges or admitting privileges um, at local hospitals it's basically the same law that texas passed and that was struck down in whole women's health not that long ago maybe three or four years ago i can't remember exactly but um and yet it was upheld by the fifth circuit um and um and the Supreme Court has now granted start uh, Before doing that, the Supreme Court uh, issued a stay of the decision, with the Chief Justice siding with the four more liberal justices um, over uh, an unhappy dissent by the by his conservative colleagues. Um, and so, you know, this is obviously it's it's important in a couple of ways. First, it's, it'll be the first abortion case to come up um, in this more conservative court, uh, and so everyone will be watching that. Um, it is also, you know, there's been uh, much made of the Justices' approach to stare decisis, which is the rule that says you have to, if we've already decided an issue, we stick to that, what we've decided in most cases. uh, You know, Justice Thomas last year said, eh, only if I like (laughs) the first decision, (laughs) you know. um, But there was a lot of, that has been in the background of everything that's been happening for the last year. Um, And so um, this will basically ask them whether they're going to stick with the case from a few years ago on basically the same issue.
0: Yeah, we saw... um The court, in a case dealing with the explosive issue of um, jurisdiction over other states, (laughs) um, have kind of this discussion about stare decisis and Justice Breyer really kind of bringing it out, saying, oh, if you're going to get rid of this, um, you know, this prior decision, then what's next? And the court did end up getting rid of it and...
2: We'll see what's next.
0: Well, yeah. He um He not so subtly cited. Uh, what was it, Casey? Like, mm, yeah. okay, we know what's on your mind.
2: <laughs> yes, um, and you know that in the confirmation hearings, in particular of Justice Kavanaugh, but also Justice Gorsuch, there are obviously many questions about Roe versus Wade. And I think Justice Kavanaugh's line was, you know, it's uh, precedent on precedent or stare decisis on stare decisis, suggesting without saying, like, I will not overturn that. Um, and well,
1: but they see don't that. have to, right? In oh, order yeah. To no. do things that they uh, can do whatever abortion, they want. <laughs> um, Rights advocates are worried about
2: right, and there are you know, and, and states have certainly felt emboldened. There are you know, states have passed these sort of heartbeat laws, basically outlawing abortions starting at six weeks, which is before many women even know they're pregnant. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think they are states are gunning for to tee up a case for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. So I don't think this is going to be the case where they would overturn Roe v. Wade, but it is you know, it certainly puts them on the spot to see how they how much they want to stick with a recent precedent.
0: Uh, There's another case on the long conference that's actually already been granted. Um, This is a case out of New York, uh, a challenge to a New York City uh, law that pretty severely limits where um, lawful gun owners can take their their guns. Or it used to be a law that was pretty strict. Um, What's going on here in this case? Why is it at the long conference if it's already been scheduled?
2: Yeah, so the because the um, respondent, which is the city of New York, is trying to make the case go away, basically. So the um, this is a case where the New York City has a, a regulation or had a rule saying that gun owners are not allowed to transport even licensed and unloaded um, guns outside of the city of New York, including to second homes or shooting ranges. And um, they prevailed in the Second Circuit, and um, the Supreme Court um, decided to take the case. And then New York City changed the rule and said, oh, no, now you can. You can take it to um, your second homes and to your into um, shooting ranges. And then New York State passed a law saying you can take it anywhere where you're allowed to have it, basically. Um, and then New York City came into the court and said it's moot, which means it's no, there's no controversy. We've given them everything they want. It should go away. Uh, the challengers have said it is not moot, um, because, uh, for various reasons, but, um, this is the one I thought was th- the most fun that you're not a- that under the rules as they are now, you're not allowed to stop at a gas station on your way to your second home or stop at a convenience store to use the restroom or something like that. Um, uh, but also not it, always
1: it, convenient to get to a gas station in the city, so. Right, gotta...
2: right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I mean, I'm talking about New York here. Uh, um, but also, sort of, you know, in, in a more serious fashion, they've said the state still says that they can. Impose these restrictions without regard to the Second Amendment, um, and you know it's, it's the Supreme Court has said uh, very limited things about the Second Amendment. They said right. you have a right to have a handgun in your home for your protection, and that and that applies to federal rules and also state and local government rules. But that's all they've said. They haven't said much more, and they have. And it's been I think almost ten years since they have said anything, right? And so they've yeah. been trying to stay out of it, uh, and. Um, and so so at the long conference, they're going to consider whether, in fact, it is moot. They just released their December argument calendar with this case on it. So um, I don't know what that if that is a hint that they think it's not moot or what, but um, it'll be interesting to see what they do.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, you mentioned they haven't said very much about, you know, about this right that they, they, they've said it's there, but not very much. And it's really left the lower courts to have to struggle to find out even what, what the law is, what tests they should apply, right. how— how harshly should they be looking at these regulations? That's an open question right now.
2: Yeah, we don't know what standard of review they call mm-hmm. it. You know, do you, you give it sort of a hard look or a deferential look?
0: Yeah, so it seems like one day they'll have to take one of these cases, but this may yes. or may not be it. Um, I wonder, you know, there was kind of a real remarkable set of filings in this case. Um, by, the first one was by uh, some Democratic senators, um, and then there was a, it got a response from um, Republican senators who I think filed a letter um tell us about that and
2: how yeah. that's going to
0: be playing in the background for the justices. It
2: was an interesting choice. So Sheld- Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, on behalf of himself and a few colleagues, um, filed the brief. And I, I think he is listed as the counsel of record. Yeah. And I remember seeing that brief and I thought, oh, that's curious. Why is there no sort of D.C. Supreme Court counsel? And then I read it and yeah. I realized why. Um, <laughs> and it's because it's, a, it's an extremely unusual filing, to say the least. He basically, um, he doesn't say it in these terms, but the gist of it is, look, if you don't get rid of this case, we're all going to know that you're in the pocket of the NRA just like the Republican Party. It's basically what he said. And, and we're going to pack the court. Yeah, yeah. right. And we're going to retaliate. You know, <laughs> And um, that, you know, this is, uh, we need to stop this now. And, um, you know, y- you can't be a part of the problem. You need to be part of the solution, basically. Um, and then Republican senators, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell wrote a letter saying, this is extremely inappropriate and outrageous and they can't do this. Um, so, um, you know, I don't think I'm not sure that helps. You know, I don't think I'll say it this way. I don't think they filed the brief because they thought it was going to influence the court. Okay, <laughs> As, um, because it seems uh, you know these are Supreme Court justices. They are an independent branch of government. Telling them what to do, having Congress say you can't do this, or we're going to think people are going to think you're illegitimate. Uh, is, in my opinion, would only probably make them more likely to do it, right? Because they don't want to show that they're independent, mm-hmm. and you know, um, they're... and the
1: two most recent justices probably hate Senator Whitehouse for getting grilled by him in Senate Judiciary <laughs> Committee. I think there's no hearings. love lost yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: um, and so, you know, I think uh, it it may serve other political purposes, and that may have they may have felt like that was a reason to do it. But um, I don't. It, it would surprise me if it had much of an effect on what actually happens.
0: All right. Well. That's a lot. We covered a lot today. Yeah. Are There are other cases, right? But I think these were good ones. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, as always, for joining us.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Sarah, for coming on. and my pleasure. Uh, giving our listeners a, a peek at the term. And uh, this is for listeners. Just know that the next episode will be a sneak peek for the term's first oral argument sitting beginning Monday, October 7th, where we'll give you... A sneak peek, you guessed it, at the cases coming up that week, including the sex discrimination cases that we talked about. So until then, thanks for listening.
2: Hi, I'm Dori Goldstein. And I'm Meg McAvoy. We're both legal analysts at Bloomberg Law. It's our job to write, speak, and think about the future of law and the legal industry. It's a pretty fun job. (laughs) It is. But as co-hosts of Law X.0, we're going to talk about so much more. And we'll have some backup. I love you guys. (laughs) We're fans. You're so fun. (laughs) So much backup.
1: It's almost like we're on the uphill of a roller coaster.
2: Law X.0 is about bringing you the next version of the legal industry. Yeah, Law X.0 is like 2.0, but X.0 because we don't exactly know what tomorrow will bring. But whatever it is, we'll make sure you're prepared We'll be speaking to leading practitioners, former regulators, and lawyers on the front lines of legal change.
1: It's within that next year that we first start to see the appearance of these clauses in M&A.
2: We're all becoming M&A experts right now. (laughs) We'll feature actionable, data-driven analysis.
1: Our analysis showed that these three factors correlated to Fifth Circuit judges reversing district court decisions.
2: And we'll get at the insights behind the law. Why don't you look at
0: CEO pay? We have found that to be the biggest risk factor. And uncover something new and unexpected.
2: It's like a shell game. Accountability to everyone is accountability to nobody. Hear how the legal world is responding to the companies you're watching and the stories you're reading. We've seen that at Facebook in in the poor response they've had to the number of cases against them. Law and the legal industry are changing fast. We are dedicated to seeing around corners and getting you ready for the next version of the legal industry. Download Law X.0 from Bloomberg Law wherever you get your podcasts.